This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, welcome to the beautiful Lowry Theatre here in Salford, still one of the jewels of the European Union, because we are still in the European Union. And we are still in the European Union because of people like you in this room, and everybody who sort of campaigned, and also the DUP. So a big round of applause for yourselves and them. Um, after we booked the show, we were gripped by fear that Boris Johnson would get his way and we'd either be hosting a kind of post-Brexit therapy session, like the one with uh, the start of Avengers Endgame, or there'd be a no-deal crash-out and our journey here would be like the movie The Road. Uh, but Johnson has neither done nor died. Somewhere in England, a ditch is missing its Prime Minister. And we're delighted to be here in Greater Manchester for the very first Romaniacs Live in the north of England. Um, actually can't see people, but before we meet the panel, uh, can we have a show of hands uh, who listens to the podcast? Hey, lights up. <laughs> Lovely. Um, first, she's one of our regulars on the show. She edits the brilliant LSE Brexit blog. Put your hands together for Ros Taylor. <laughs> so Ros, you did the emergency podcast the night before the big march and the Let Win Amendment. Yeah. And a lot of listeners were rather touched by the deep melancholy in your voice. <laughs> um, how are you feeling now? Are you, are you more optimistic? Or? Yeah, a little bit more optimistic. I was, I was very... I was quite down that day, but I was doing my best to kind of be... to look to the future. And I don't know if I got the tone quite right, actually, because I, I suspect that I ended up just sounding a little bit, a little bit too depressed. But, but, but I am feeling... Because just more, more has happened, and now we've got an election, and things can change again, and it's all in play again. So I'm, I'm feeling... And, you know, I think you, you, someone said it... Um, Sounded a bit like the French, you know, the last the last uh, broadcast from the French occupation, and yeah, it was. But but you know, the Germans the Germans got defeated in the end. So that was that was the vibe I was aiming for. Yeah, this is a bad bad moment, but we're gonna it's gonna improve. Well, we got told off for being depressing, and it was like it's not us that's depressing; it's things yes. that are actually happening <laughs> that we are talking about. Yeah, um, but we're going to be very uplifting tonight. Um, so the Brexit press was surprisingly quiet on the kind of they've stolen your Brexit front on Friday. The pro-Brexit march in Whitehall mm. uh, was, was barely enough for a five-a-side game. <laughs> um, did the deadline, which, of course, you know, the, the do-or-die deadline, <laughs> the uh, melted-down 50p deadline, <laughs> did it sort of matter at all in the end to the feelings out there? No, 
I don't think it, it made much difference at all because it was it was intent for Johnson. You know, it's just uh, he, he promised, but then everyone knows by now that he lies all the time. So we, it was kind of priced in, and he wanted to leave by thirty first of October, but he didn't get it. But you know, he's going to carry on trying. And uh, you know, to, to the people who who would normally, you know, a few years back, that would have been a total deal breaker, and you would have been hounded out of office for being lying about it. It's just cool now. Well, there was an amazing thing in, in, in Private Eye, which was just a list of all the things that, that Dominic Cummings, a.k.a. A Number 10 Source, had claimed <laughs> that didn't come true. Yeah. All, like, the cunning plans of, like, writing the letter in invisible ink or something. <laughs> um, and it just and it doesn't seem to sort of matter. And the kind of the journalists... It's like it doesn't matter to, with, about Dominic Cummings. It doesn't matter about the journalists who reported it. Well, so much to feed on. I mean, just every day, more stuff keeps happening. I mean, it's look over there, more, more sparkly things. Oh, look, look, the prorogation. Oh, oh, oh. And, and you, you just can't keep up. I mean, it's, it's insane, the pace of it. And now there's an election. So uh, it's just um, Dominic Cummings' main, main strategy, as you've just said, is distraction. He's just, oh, look over there. Look over there. Oh, I've got a cunning plan. That's what he does. And that's what you've got to resist and say, no, not going to be distracted. This is bad. This is wrong. Hmm. Also, well, this is a man who has to be tranquilised and bundled into a sack to leave London. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> you try, I was the first person in the fucking train station. <laughs> tried to use an Oyster card on the tram from Piccadilly. <laughs> that didn't work. Um, it's editor of politics.co.uk, author of the forthcoming How to Be a Liberal, Ian Dunt. Um, so Dominic Cummings did tell us to get out of London and stop talking to rich Remainers. Mm. How does it feel to be in the real England? <laughs> I, obviously, I voted for Brighton <laughs> because it's 45 minutes away, there's a seaside. It's nice, isn't it? I mean, there's no trees here. The people on the street looked at me like they didn't care whether I fucking lived or die. It's just like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, as we said, the Brexit riots didn't materialise. Marc Francois remains unexploded. Um, do you think I like, I like Frank Mansoir. Frank Mansoir. <laughs> that's good. That's, that works. That's his. Yeah. That's his like name on Grinder, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that what anger there is among um, Brexiters? Um, do you think that's going to hurt or help? Johnson, because it's been people have predicted it going either way that they would feel incredibly betrayed that he didn't do or die, mm -hmm. and then other people think, well, this is even more reason to kind of back him. Yeah, I don't see a lot of it at the moment, I, and I suspect that might be because there's a division within the Brexit front. I mean, most obviously, like we saw yesterday with Nigel Farage sort of going against Boris Johnson's deal, but also, of course, with Boris Johnson and Nigel Dodds and the DUP. So because you've got this sort of shattering of that alliance, which it's easy to forget now, but the first, what, year, year and a half, really until about checkers, it was a completely united front on the Leave side, and that made it very hard. That's where lots of the stuff from Labour on Customs Union came from. Of like, look, we can chisel away here on, on the customs union stuff while keeping our own side united. So on that basis, because they're quite separated, I think there's less of like a, a full-throated attack in one given direction on any matter of it. So it doesn't seem as cross as you would expect it to be. The other reality is, if you look at the polling, I'd be, he has been quite successful in convincing people. Well, I mean, in a way, not unfair, 
fairly, you know, that it's Parliament is the reason that the extension took place. I mean, Parliament literally is the reason yeah, yeah. the extension took place, so it's a fair argument to make, even if you made it in the most cynical and disingenuous manner imaginable. Our special guest is someone who's done more than most to bring real understanding to the Brexit mess. He's Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester, the co-author of Revolt on the Right, and more recently, Sex, Lies and Politics. He's a star on Twitter, and he wants to use the Manchester Metrolink map to predict how turnout would affect local elections. <laughs> so even though he wasn't born here, uh, he is a, a full-blooded Mancunian at heart. It's Rob Ford. <laughs> <laughs> As, as, as you can hear, I don't have a Manchester accent, but my kids do. Uh, they, they, they say grass uh, and think it's very funny that I say grass. Um, so, Rob, Brexit is... I mean, there is that terrible kind of cliché of reporting where it's the sort of capital versus the, the, the rest of the country, as if there are no other cities uh, in Britain. But is it even as simple as kind of cities versus sort of suburbia and the countryside, or is the Brexit divide... Does that break down into even more sort of complex... No, no, it's, it's much more subtle than that. Uh, I mean, we always have to use these shorthands uh, when you're t talking on the radio or you're, you're doing this sort of uh, in the newspapers because you've just not got the space. Uh, but in reality, it's more like a continuum. So, you know, at one end, you've got Islington or whatever, or South Manchester, for example, where I live, which is sort of hardcore remain as well. And at the other end, you've got your uh, Grimsby's and your Doncaster's and so on. And most places fall in between those two ends of the continuum. But because it's always easy, for us to think in terms of shorthands, we always end up talking about those bits at either end of the continuum. But even in those bits, even in Grimsby and even in Islington, there's quite a lot of people from the other side of the argument. You know, there's a 20% leave vote in Islington, there's a 30% remain vote in Grimsby. So even in those places, it's not as simple as we think it is. Mm. Um, if you could sort of change one thing in the popular understanding or perhaps the media narrative of Brexit... Um, what would it be? What do you think is the kind of fallacy that gets in the way the most? Well, it probably follows up, follows up what I was just saying. I, I, would, I would want people to understand that the vote is incredibly complicated. I mean, I, I research elections, and the reason I love researching, ele researching elections is because people are hugely complicated. We're a big, diverse nation, and any constituency, any local authority in this country will have a great diversity of opinion, but we're incredibly bad at actually grasping hold of that idea, so everything always gets reduced to archetypes and stereotypes. And, you know, as the great man Damon Albarn said, there's more to life than stereotypes. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> in the Brexit debate, there often isn't. Would you ban Vox Pops? <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would lay down an iron rule that Vox Pops could not be conducted in market stalls on a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll be talking about the general election and the role that Brexit will play. Plus, even if someone manages to get Brexit done or get Brexit gone, will we have to get used to a permanent state of rage among the electorate for years to come? Has the Brexit experience managed to hook another generation of voters on anger, and what do we do about that? But don't worry, we'll also be keeping it light with a few <laughs> rounds of the beloved parlour game Leave or Remain, uh, which this time will be backed up by actual data from Rob, as opposed to a normal sort of just glib... <laughs> improvisations. I resent this very much, that someone is bringing, like, empirical analysis to our bullshit. Like, I just don't know if we can survive. Excuse like... me, Ian, you know, that, that's, <laughs> sometimes that's my job. Uh, invite an academic on, this is what happens. I'm sorry, ruin all your fun. <laughs> do you... What academics at stand-up shows, do you just like when someone goes, have you ever noticed, like, why is this the case? And then you just go, actually... 
the data shows that there is a very good reason for that. So we'll also be talking about the heroes of the Brexit wars, people we actually like, and there'll be an interval for drinks and a chance to buy our quality Manchester-centric merchandise, and we'll have audience questions after the show as well. First up, the beast is upon us. It's the general election... Uh, Boris Johnson is sneaking into hospitals for photo ops. Labour and the Lib Dems are tearing chunks out of each other. And Nigel Farage, God bless him, says the Brexit party will contest every seat in the country unless Johnson drops his deal and forms a Leave alliance. Roz, Boris Johnson does want the election to be about Brexit. Corbyn really doesn't. Is, is he going to be able to stick to the plot, Johnson? Or is, is he going to be derailed by perhaps issues we didn't anticipate? Because 2017, of course, nobody anticipated that, you know, there's going to be the dementia tax in the manifesto, which became, you know, this kind of rolling clusterfuck. Mm. Um, so do you think that when the manifestos arrive, there's going to be other issues which are going to sort of benefit the opposition? Yeah, I mean, there's a big risk with the NHS because, um, I'm sorry to say this, but it looks like a lot of you are going to get flu this winter um, and uh, because uh, there's a pretty bad virus that's come up from Australia. That's because we all have flu, so that's we're just bringing yeah, it to we're, you. We're just going to breathe it over you. And, and, um, but but uh, that will lead to a crisis in the NHS, and it could well hit just around December the 12th, which is, you know, it, it, that, that, will look, that will look bad and that will focus attention on underfunding of the NHS and, you know, uh, trolleys and corridors and all the rest of it. But on a more positive note, Boris Johnson has one big weakness. He has a lot of weaknesses, but a lot of them are weaknesses that now seem to be strengths, like lying. Um, but his big weakness is he cannot... When he ha- is, has a real crisis, he's not capable of dealing with it. Now, um, when he was London mayor, he was on holiday in Canada during the uh, riots, when there were uh, very, very serious riots down there, and um, he... Um, did not know how to react, and he basically stayed in Canada for quite a while and didn't thought, oh, I won't do anything. And then he belatedly came back to Britain and uh, did a photo op with a broom, you know, in Brixton or whatever. Mm. And he, but he cannot, he has not been confronted because of the, also his profession and the, you know, as a journalist, you don't get from, from confronted with this kind of stuff, with crises that he has to deal with. And when you're a PM, stuff happens, and really bad stuff happens, and you have to rise to the occasion. And he's not capable of doing that because his whole public persona is, you know, jolly, flippant, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's not what people want when the real shit hits the fan. And that's why he couldn't, didn't want to go, desperately didn't want to go for no deal because he really knows what a nightmare no deal would be because he has seen the briefings for it. And... That's that's why he is really frightened of this kind of crisis happening and of not being the man for the occasion. Because let's face it, there's one thing he doesn't have: it's gravitas. He's not the man you're going to trust in a crisis, and that's going to be his weakness. There will be a, a crisis. It might be sooner. It might be later. It might very well be during an election campaign, and that's when he will come undone, and people will start saying, "Okay, I'm not sure I actually want this jovial guy in charge of the country." Mm. And Ian, our very nice... I know this sounds like a kind of Thomas Friedman column by quoting a a driver, but our very nice Uber driver was going, (laughs) why aren't um, Labour and Lib Dems, you know, why isn't there an electoral pact where they stand down to sort of so you don't split the Remain vote? And so far in the election, they're kind of like really going at it and there was like a kind of proxy war through the Best of Britain tactical voting site, which became like another kind of Labour-Lib Dem sort of battleground. Is this... Is this just sort of inevitable? Is it sort of fanciful to think that these two parties, with, with really, even though they've got the Remain overlap, with really quite different people that they're trying to reach, mm-hmm. would kind of 
you know, really kind of join forces and stand down in their respective uh, marginals. Yeah, well, plus the incentives, right? So if you're um, Joe Swinson, you really do need to shit on Labour a certain amount because lots of the constituencies that you're targeting, uh, the voters that you need to get, are not they're not going to go for Labour. They don't really like Brexit, but they really don't like Jeremy Corbyn either. And to prove your credentials there, you are going to need to do a certain amount of this. There is also the tribal identity element, which is that especially on parts of the left, there is nothing more hateful than lefties who aren't quite like you. You know, the, the Tories are viewed as, like, sort of natural disasters, like earthquakes or, or tidal waves, whereas actual other lefties, they're just they're sort of the enemy, and you, you, you get that sense by how they attack. However, I think when it comes down to it, elections within parties are decided on where is it sensible for us to spend our resources, where is it sensible to spend our money, and on that basis, you are not going to see, you know, the Lib Dems spending tremendous amounts of money in seats that were, are only ever going to go for Labour and vice versa. You also, so that is one thing that will mitigate against it outside of these initial opening skirmishes, I hope and think. And the second one is that voters in this country are very, very used to tactical voting. I think p- voters actually in this country are so used to it, they barely even recognise that they are tactical voting. You know, you're very used to thinking, what is my least bad outcome? How do I get the person that I least like away from and winning it? And on that basis, that will deliver, in most cases, not all, there will be some fuck-ups, but in most cases, I think, just this the punishing gravity of first-past-the-post will sort of force voters to, to behave tactically, even when the leaderships themselves aren't there. Um, Rob, you pointed out that Johnson needs the Lib Dems to do well and Corbyn needs Farage to do well. And you're really hoping for the other side's vote to be split. Is there anything they can do to encourage that? <laughs> or they just hope for the best for them? Well, it's very tricky because um, you don't... Also, I think there's a risk in pushing that argument too far because you don't know for for certain that it's always going to pan out for you, number one. And number two, the last person Farage wants an endorsement from is Jeremy Corbyn and the last person that Joe Swinson wants an endorsement from is Boris Johnson. So you don't help them by helping them in an obvious way. Um, But... Take, for example, when I wrote the book on UKIP, I had lots and lots of Labour strategists would say to me, but UKIP are great because UKIP split the right and then will win. Uh, And in 2015, they were completely wrong because uh, actually the Conservatives were able to win even with a big UKIP vote. Now, in 2019, I find myself arguing against my own past self Mm. and saying, no, this time UKIP really are splitting the right and it really isn't Labour votes that they're taking, but UKIP have now decided, or rather Brexit Party, which is UKIP 2.0, are now saying, um, you know we're going to go to these northern working-class heartlands and we're going to take all these Labour votes. And it's like, guys, there aren't any Labour leave votes there anymore. They all went in 2017. There's not enough of them. All the votes that the Conservatives gained in those seats, which is lots of votes, came either from UKIP or from Labour leavers. And in every single Labour leave seat, with one exception, I think, which I can never remember which one it is, the majority of the Labour vote is Remain. So really, if you're Labour in those seats, you want Nigel Farage going out there and saying, I'm going to do so much damage to Labour and Labour leave seats, because actually what he's going to do is improve your prospects in those seats. So in a way, they're really delighted, probably, privately, with what he's saying, um, because if that's his strategy, it suits them. There's also that air war with Farage, isn't there? One of the things he said yesterday, we talked about less, was I'm going to try and make sure that in every household there is information showing how bad Boris Johnson's deal is. Now, on that basis, which, by the way... Big round of applause for Nigel Farage. (laughs) (laughs) 
honestly, I was just like, well, fucking, I'm going to get a gin and tonic, man. I'm just going to sit and watch this shit. I was so happy. Like, we will never, like, anyone on the Remain side will never access those voters. Now, he is in a position to be convincing mm. towards them and to start shattering that really, really sort of um, vulnerable alliance that, that Boris Johnson was just about keeping held together around his deal with everyone gets what they want, apart from the DUP. And on that basis, I think Farage can do an awful lot of damage, not on the seat-by-seat -seat stuff, but just on the general national level that's hitting every day. It's one of the, the amazing paradox of the whole Brexit story is that consistently, time after time, whether it's Farage or the ERG or DUP, it's like the, the people who stop Brexit are the people who really want Brexit. Yeah. It's like you know when they we are, our, you know, in, in that sense, they're constantly coming to our rescue. It's like Remain mm. is on its knees <laughs> and then just some Brexit hardliner comes along and just smashes it all up. <laughs> Right. I had to, you know, because we had to pick for later, like our, our heroes of, of the Brexit period. It fucking took all of my strength not to pick basically just all the prominent Brexiteers for being such unspeakable dimwits. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's almost like if it actually happened, it might not be as good as they say it's going to be. And that's why they've got to keep <laughs> stop letting, you know, they've got to stop it happening. Uh, it's extraordinary. Rob, back in 2014, you, were, you spotted um, how important the generational divide in values yeah. was. Um, do you think that that's going to be an important factor in, in this election? Um, yes, very likely. It was a huge factor in the last election. And it's funny because uh, I teach politics, obviously, and I t talk to students, and my students have lived entirely in the post-Brexit era as adults. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're like, oh, well, and then they, they'll write this and say, this, oh, well, politics has always been divided generationally. And I say, no, actually, you only have to go back three elections, and there was virtually no age generation difference in voting patterns at all. This is really, really new. And it's because something that was always there, which is this big generational divide in values, open versus closed, nationalist versus cosmopolitan which was always there but latent has become mobilized into our politics but it's it's like a genie that you can't put back into a bottle easily now that it's there and it's in the front of people's minds i don't think it's going to go anywhere very soon so i expect this next election will again be very very strongly structured by age and generation and when you talk about this as a, as a sort of generational divide do you think that as as the sort of years go by and um some of the older people move on um, <laughs> some, some younger people move in um, is it specific to this generation or as people you know as, as sort of people grow older it's always been one of those things you know are they are likely to be more right wing as they get older is there just something about the current sort of cohort mm. that is specifically more right wing more pro Brexit and that won't be the case in 10 years time well, you've stumbled into one of the great academic bun fights, which is, is it generation? Is it age? Is it the conditions that exist when, you, when you're sort of uh, coming into politics, which is called like a period effect? And basically, there are people who spent 40 years of their career arguing about which one of those things is primary so without coming to a conclusion. <laughs> we haven't got in, a lot. In my, in my <laughs> view, the generational stuff tends to be the biggest effect. Uh, and that, that's sort of what we are, as people, most sensitive to the conditions that exist when we come of age, when we sort of in our late teens, our early 20s. That's what defines quote-unquote normal for us for the rest of our lives. So I'm a sad Blairite centrist dad because I came of age in 1998, so it was the height of new labour and stuff like that. So that's what normal is for me. For the students I'm teaching now, the current circumstances, the culture war, the generational divide is normal, which is why they thought that had always existed. So I think the generational thing will be most important. And the generation that's coming through politics now is likely to be 
and remain the most socially liberal generation that the country has ever seen. And so as time goes by and they become a more prominent part of the electorate, both because they're bigger and because they start turning out more, because when they're 18 they don't so much, that's likely to pull the centre of gravity in terms of the country's values in a liberal direction. I'm going to get my gin and tonic again. (laughs) (laughs) So we just need to... So really, we just need to push this election back to, like, 20... 2029, 2039, we'd be fine. One caution I'd make about this is, again, back to my UKIP days, when I first presented UKIP research to a sort of Labour-leaning audience, there was a quite quite well-known Labour activist there, I won't name him, and he said, so what you're saying, Rob, is we just got to wait five years and then all the UKIP voters will die. Uh, Mm. And and I said, well, that's, uh, you know, uh, an interesting viewpoint, uh, but uh, (laughs) it doesn't quite work because the problem is that people on the other side of the values divide can see this happening and they can polarise in response. And that's indeed what's very much happened in the US. So if you know you're losing the values argument, it radicalises you too. Mm-hmm. So you become much more firmly behind the turn black the clock side of the politics, the sort of stop it all, I want to get off side of politics. So in the long run, you end up with a more liberal society, but you might have 10, 15, 20 years of really intense argument before you get there. You might need another gin and tonic here. <laughs> I'll fucking take it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You've also got a really weird thing going on, which is in previous generations, the old were not seen as enviable. You know, to be elderly was, you know, it was not something desirable in any way. Now, I'm not saying that young people nowadays look at um, elderly people and think, yeah, I want to be them. But they do see a lot of wealth uh, compared to their generation. A lot of, not everybody, of course, that's not true for everybody. Not all elderly people are rich by any by any um, standards but they see yeah, a lot of housing wealth and they see things that they don't have and that completely changes the dynamic I think because you're not you're not rebelling in the traditional sense against old people's values but you, you you've, there's this kind of element of, uh, of, of envy as well and mm. it's, 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 so it's much more complex because of that. From a completely selfish point of view the one thing I like about this sort of generational tension is that the millennials hate the boomers and the boomers hate millennials, and Generation X just gets to kind of walk through the middle. Like, like in a kind of thing, you know, where someone walks through a kind of massive fight in a bar, and they kind of crawl through everyone's legs and nobody notices them. That's Generation X just going, not our fault, mate. Uh, let's have round one of Leave or Remain, where our panellists get some famous names, have to decide whether they're Let's Go WTO or European Army Now, or some point in between. First up is special guest Rob Ford who, like I says, has actual research to support his answers. Um, your category is television characters. Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, th- this comes from that new book of mine, Sex, Lies and Politics, available in all good <laughs> bookstores. And oh, <laughs> on famous book websites, I won't name them. Um, so I'm, g- so I'm going to give you the names, and then yeah. you tell me the... Right, uh, Alan Partridge. Well, do you guys want to guess first, and then I can <laughs> reveal what the data is? Wait, wait. Oh. Wait. Because the data, I mean, like, I mean, Adam Butcher does not exist, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, when yeah, you say, what exactly was the study process? Uh, well, this was a YouGov survey in late 2016 that asked um, uh, some unfortunate YouGov panelists, "How do you think these fictional characters voted?" It's what in people the think Brexit, they right, uh, right. like pointless, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah, which side are they on? It's not pointless. It was good as well. <laughs> no, it's it's, sorry. it's very <laughs> important and valuable research. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> with a capital P. I wasn't discrediting in any way this vital service that you provide. Okay, let's talk Obviously about the most important research in modern times. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Partridge. How did Alan Partridge? Obviously, leave. Leave. No, he's, he's, he's remain. He's remain. What? 
No, he's right because he's basically, a cons- you know, he's small C conservative, oh. uh, and he's he he doesn't really like change. He's kind of fond of his, uh, but and he and, and he he's not a radical. He's he's definitely not. Let's go WTO. Right, let's family fortunes it. What did the people say? Our, our survey says leave plus seven for Alan Partridge. So no. a, a mild lever, maybe a sort of soft Brexiteer. Mm. Wait, do, how far do the place. pluses go up in this insane fictional study? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be giving the game away. <laughs> OK. Um, groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons. <laughs> the fucking weirdest thing. Yep. Um, if presumably he still lived in Scotland. And not in I, mean, I guess I would, go, I would go leave. Yeah, yeah. He's quite a Scottish nationalist, though, isn't he? <laughs> mm, there's a, more of an overlap than there than oh, you. Oh yeah. Oh right. No, okay, all right. Yeah. He's, a, he's a leaving at. Mm. Yeah. Yes, uh, our survey says leave plus twelve. Uh, the British public mm. agrees that uh, groundskeeper Willie is one of those leaving nats. Don't like rule from Westminster. Don't like rule from Brussels either. Mm. Um, Doesn't like Bart Simpson. Quite likes Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pat Butcher. For me, standards. <laughs> um, I think she's remain. Yeah, yeah, I'd say remain. Uh, yeah, obviously, not. She's not going out in any demos. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I, I'd say, but, but you know, she's she, she'll listen to the other side. She's prepared to uh, be flexible. Uh, our, our survey says the British public was expecting to see her at the Brexit party launch yesterday. Oh. She's leave plus 26. Holy shit. She's Whoa. hard leave. Hat! <laughs> <laughs> not sure what Frank makes of it. <laughs> um, Arthur Dent from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yeah, yeah, Remain. Remain. For Remain, right? Yeah, yeah. No idea. I haven't read it. Sorry. He's not, he's not a- I'm sorry. No, I... I, I, I- <laughs> I, I, my, my first boyfriend, when I was 17, he tried to make me read it, and, and uh, we broke up before I could start. <laughs> and then after that, I got put off it. Because, what did well, the people you know. say? Um, well, uh, I mean, you'd think Arthur Dent maybe not happy about EU-funded bypasses and so forth, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the great British public has him at Remain plus seven. I'd question the numbers, but again, you haven't... <laughs> Explained what on earth they mean. So the numbers <laughs> are, are final and authoritative. It's science. Don't argue with science. <laughs> Some medieval peasant. <laughs> it's science. Right, Captain Mannering from Dad's Army. <laughs> I mean, you can't. Yeah, he's he's got to be. He's he's leave. Yeah. Yeah, mildly so. I mean, he's not. He's not. Uh, let's go WTO. He's too much. Too fond of order and you know, not chaos. Yeah. Soft uh, it. British public thinks uh, he makes Pat Butcher look moderate. Uh, leave plus 31. Oh. The most I'm Levy uh, celebrity asked about, in fact, oh, yeah. fictional. I'm, not, I'm okay. not in tune with the British public, am I? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a recurring theme on this podcast. <laughs> the Vicar of Dibley. Oh, mm. super remain. remain. So remain. Mm. Totally. That's got to be that's yes. like top level yes. remain. There you are in tune yeah. with the British Church. public. She was yeah. the most remain leaning. I'm surprised she's uh, even allowed that job in Dibley. Yeah. <laughs> Dibley's, Dibley's pretty leave. Um, Captain Birdseye. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> He'll be one of those angry leave leavey fishermen. He hates the fishing policy. He wants to get his fish fingers for every likes. <laughs> Look, yeah, I know they're not fish. actually in the sea. The fish fingers. Fish. Yeah. fish. This was this was Leave. weird before, but now <laughs> he doesn't even say anything, does he? It's just a fucking picture. He says, "Can't he? Can't?" 
He says, our bird's eye. That's what he says. He does but, say that, yeah. But he's into fish, and therefore I'm assuming that he's very into British fish. I'm, 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 I'm you know, yeah. no, no doubt that, that Captain Birdseye actually gets his fish from Iceland or something, but that's not the point. And he's, he's into British fish, and therefore he's a lever because he wants control of fishing stocks. Yeah. Ian, also? I have no fucking opinion, man. <laughs> you're ab- you're I, you've gone off the you? scale now. I Once again, yeah. ducking the big issues of the day. <laughs> well, the, the, the British public thinks Captain Verzai not happy about Spanish trawlers. Leave plus 11. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, the Doctor from Doctor Who. Which doesn't, one? Doesn't yeah, say which, which one, one, unfortunately. That was a oh, clear question. Well, that can fuck off right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't... <laughs> doesn't make any sense it doesn't you know yeah, because if we're talking peter davison he's he's i think pretty leave but well, it was t- the 2016 doctor because that's when the poll that matt smith still okay remain i mean it's going to be pretty because he's so kind of liberal freedom of movement Mon- modern, like modern unlimited day freedom, of movement. freedom of movement through time <laughs> yeah. yeah it's quite hard to imagine him sort of talking about very strict border controls <laughs> We could imagine just going like, I'm just going to have the TARDIS here, and they go, we could travel anywhere in space and time. And he goes, no, we're fucking staying here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, remain plus remain. a bazillion. <laughs> Our survey says remain plus nine. So, no. yes, he's on the remain okay. side. Okay, you've had your fun. Um, <laughs> let's move on. That's science oh, for weird. you guys. Uh, so <laughs> your job is amazing. This is what you do all day. Literally my job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's move on. Are we living in an age of rage? (laughs) The Brexit debate gets more and more toxic. Personal abuse is more and more part of daily political life. This week we saw several MPs, including Heidi Allen, Gloria Di Piero and Louise Elman, decide not to stand in the general election, saying relentless abuse and plausible threats of violence made it impossible for them to continue. Um... I really killed the. You really killed there, the fucking mood. Holy moly! Um, <laughs> Ross, the FT found that um, toxic tweets increased dramatically um, after Boris Johnson dismissed MPs' concerns as as humbug. Um, is there a sense of? I mean, obviously, a lot of this is just coming from the sort of from the ground in a sense. But is there also a sense that it's coming from? It's being sort of led by from the top that there is that, that, that the politicians like Boris Johnson are responsible for creating a more aggressive climate. Yeah, well, they're certainly um, enabling it because um, they're, they're not disapproving of it. Uh, and and, and they're, but they're, yeah, Humbug was a classic example. There was another MP who was writing in The Guardian yesterday, Glyn Davis, a Tory MP for Montgomery, uh, Montgomeryshire, I think. And uh, he was basically saying, well... You know, there's a lot of abuse in politics, and there's always been a lot of abuse in politics. Oh, um, personally, I remember when I was chased down a path by the pitchfork uh, with a pitchfork by somebody who disagreed with me, and that's why I believe that um, you should just you should just uh, accept it when it's doled out. And then at the end of the article, he explains that he doesn't do Twitter um, because he doesn't actually want to be exposed to this kind of abuse, um, which struck me as slightly odd to say the least. And there's this idea that you know. You, it doesn't count because it's on social media. Actually, it counts a lot. It, it's enormously important. And rape threats are no less bad because they happen on social media than if there was somebody shouting it out in a, uh, fr- from an audience. It's just easier to be anonymous when you do it. And uh, that's why people um, are evil uh, and <laughs> cruel, cruel enough to do it. Um, the idea that social media abuse is not really abuse is a really pernicious one. And, you know, you're not, you're not really under threat, darling. <coughs> just, just to turn off Twitter, you know, just stop checking your social media. <laughs> 
these these it's just rubbish i i really uh, dislike the idea that that you um really really don't like the idea that it doesn't count because it's written down on social media hmm. um ian the worst ones in the study um were people related to and i'm as shocked as you are the brexit party hmm. um but there were also the second worst were people with the fbpe hashtag mm-hmm. um is it you know, is is I mean, this is our sort of our side. Um, how bad do you think the the aggression towards <laughs> MPs can can get? For example, I remember there were some uh, around uh, Melanie on mm-hmm. and Caroline Flit and those kind of like pro deal Labour MPs. I saw some pretty uh, aggressive stuff coming from the Remain side. Um, but without, I don't want to kind of Donald Trump both sides it. But how do how do they compare? Do you think? Okay, so. I... I mean, we, we had some data there that was to show that it's a, it's a bigger problem on the Brexit side, but remains a significant problem on the Remain side. So technology is impacting us, I mean, the way you've just described, on a, a pretty deep human level. We have a <coughs> fundamental personality as to how we look at things. We are becoming more tribal in, in the background of a narrative, we can go into a bit, which encourages ideas around betrayal and identity around these various tribes. And you have a disconnect from seeing the effect of your, of your actions. And so you will find this kind of behaviour in both cases. I think most of the time it seems to be directed, as far as I can tell, to people that are associated with betrayal. So I thought more of the stuff seems to be about exactly people like Caroline Flick, Labour MPs who are wavering, rather than it was, you know, John Redwood. Because, again, you just think, what's the fucking point of shouting at a cupboard? You know, yeah. like, there's no... Whatever. So, I mean, that, that does seem to be the way it is. You, you can discourage this stuff by your manner that, frankly, you can be aggressive towards people on Twitter and in political debate, adversarial, and keeping it rooted down in objectivity and fact and argument and not allowing it to go the other way, and especially pulling back whenever you see that kind of the swirling hate of, 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 of Twitter just launch in on someone and just keep mm. them buried at the bottom of that well in a way that does not just a disservice to them, but usually does a disservice to your own humanity when you're part of the gang, <coughs> ganging up against someone. So you change it in your manner when you find it. But we are, we are all vulnerable to behaving this way under these conditions. Rob, does an abusive style sort of correlate with other... Um, with particular sort of political beliefs or sort of... I'm not even talking about necessarily party allegiance, but sort of certain leanings yes there, there is a long-standing finding that um there's, there's what's known as uh, authoritarian uh, values authoritarian personalities and th- those are people who tend to find um difference and disagreement and uncertainty and change more threatening and so they tend to be the people that very much construct these sort of fortress identities uh, and this is why indeed you do see this stuff most strongly at people who they feel have betrayed their quote-unquote side because it's like they've let a hole into the fortress mm. type thing but one of the interesting things about those very same people is they tend to be the people who are most responsive uh, to what people they respect in authority positions say, hence they're called authoritarians. So if figures that they respect, like Farage or Johnson, were to say this style of talking is not acceptable, um, they are actually in a position to sway how people behave more than perhaps they realise. People do, basically everyone across the spectrum, they do care what other people think about them. They do care about social norms, broadly conceived. So if they come to see a certain kind of behaviour as being unacceptable because people in positions of authority who they respect say this is not allowed, this is not done... They will respond to that. Mm. 
Um, so in a sense, I feel that there is a kind of ray of hope here in that we do know from the research that if you can find a way to get that message through loud and clear to these people from people they respect, there is a chance of changing, not everyone, some people are just beyond help, of course, you know, we've all encountered them on social media, but there's a pretty big chunk of people who will shift their behaviour if they're given a very strong and clear message by those they respect. Because this is the thing about um, where lots of time this stuff is defended. I mean, you do see it on Twitter often responding and they go, well, obviously nobody defends, you know, racists. But what do you expect if you're a traitor, essentially? Mm -hmm. um, and there is such a thing as legitimate anger. People can be very angry about, uh, you know, Brexiters can be very angry about Parliament if they want. Uh, people can be angry about austerity. Or, I mean, there are all kinds of things that there is a, you can be legitimately angry about. Um, but the abuse tends to be sort of... That doesn't necessarily follow, does it? It's like when you're talking about, are people allowed to be angry? Sure, that's a motivation to action. But that's not the same as, like, hounding somebody out of politics with, like, vile sort of threats. Do you think that there is too much of a rhetoric of, well, what do you expect? Of course they're cross. Well, so let's not be naive about their intentions, right? Like, yes, of course, there's lots of things for people to be legitimately upset about. But since the beginning of Brexit and Trump, we have seen the classic nationalist propaganda playbook operating in this country. And that always has the same binary opposition. It's the people versus the other. And the other is usually portrayed as the elite. This shit goes way black. If you look at like, the very tail end of the 19th century, beginning of um, the 20th, um, with the Dreyfus affair in France, it spasms out of fucking nowhere. It comes absolutely out of nowhere. It's a convoluted, basically a spy story where they catch a senior officer who happened to be Jewish and accused them of spying, <coughs> falsely accused them of spying. And it, the anti-Semitism that just sprang out in that country was all based on very, very similar rhetoric. The people are pure. The other, which is usually the immigrant, the Jewish person, the elite, whatever, is, is the enemy. And that works powerfully well because it is anchored down in an idea of betrayal but when people use this and we have seen that people versus the elite stuff you know you see it in brazil right now you see it in hungary right now the other changes i mean you obviously see it in britain you see it in the us the other changes but ultimately the binary is always the same and it is not used because these guys i mean boris johnson is not sitting there really thinking that there is this great homogenous blob of people that are all under attack by the you know by the by the courts and this conspiracy that has undone it in parliament he knows what the fucking truth is he does this stuff because it works because it motivates people, because it stops people from focusing on the things that actually matter in their lives, that actually might improve their lives. So as much as we can see the game, we can't kid ourselves into thinking that they've come to this stuff, you know, out of their own really genuine intentions, because they fucking haven't. They've done it because they're cynical scumbags. <laughs> That wasn't very civil, Ian. I think you just coarsened the debate there. <laughs> um, Ros, bef before we move on, do you think that there's just... It's certainly in the, in the short term, maybe the long term too, that there's a real practical danger here. There's a lot of the MPs who are standing down for that reason. Um, sometimes they're explicit. Sometimes you get a sense of dimension behind it. They are often women, um, and many of them seem quite normal. It's sort of, you know, the Heidi Allen category where it just seemed like somebody just going, you know, had no idea really what she was letting herself in for. And you can totally understand why she's like, I could have a better life. I could have another life beyond yeah. all this. Does that mean that, whereas somebody like, you know, Marc Francois, Frank Mars Marsois, um, <laughs> I mean, he's not going to kind of 
he's not going to be, he's not that sensitive, I don't think. Um, and he's not going to be particularly offend, affected by abuse. And he, the people like that will stay. People like Heidi Allen will leave. Do you think this will affect the kind of MPs we get, the kind of candidates we get, and it's just going to favour a certain kind of personality type, whereas really in Parliament you want lots of different personality types? Well, I hope it won't, but I fear it might. I mean, there are... We were talking earlier about Jess Phillips and um, how she's almost bulletproof, although she does get to her, but she's um, uh, she has a capacity to... Um, to shrug off this stuff, I'm not saying it's not extremely hurtful to her but and difficult, but to kind of carry on. And for some people, it's not possible. And it's OK for it not to be possible. We shouldn't, you know, we should, especially we should not uh, criticise people because they can't put up with this level of abuse. It's like, you know, abuse of this kind of abuse on Twitter is really not dissimilar to when you've got a woman walking down the street, as all the women here will have walked down the street, and we have some abuse thrown at us. And, you know, we kind of, we want to, we carry on and we keep on with the brave face, but inside we're feeling totally shit <laughs> because of what's been done to us. And there is there is no there is a real parallel there because the people who are doing it want us to be intimidated they it's not you know it's not really sexual just you know a rape threat to somebody or a female politician is not sexual it's purely about violence and it's purely about intimidation and it's purely about saying shut up and you know this because if you're a woman if you do call back the abuse you get is unbelievably bad mm. and it's it's, it's purely about power and keeping women in their place and not letting them get too uppity. And we should not be... We shouldn't, we shouldn't denigrate the women who can't, can't actually keep it going despite that because it's incredibly hard to deal with and it's utterly relentless. Well, let's add to the divisiveness in this riven country of ours with another round of Leave or Remain. Um, this Ross, format's getting super weird. We're just going to do, like, turgid moral horror of the country. Yeah, yeah. Gags. Gags. <laughs> horror, gags. Horror, gags. Um, Roz, it's your turn to lighten the mood. It needs lightening. Um, and you have to decide whether they're Germany Plus or South Korea Minus. It's literary characters. There's no data to support this. This is just free jazz improv from Roz. Um, first, Robinson Crusoe. Well, you know, the thing people forget about Robinson Crusoe is he didn't, he didn't actually enjoy being on the island very much. He was, he was struggling mentally a lot of the time that he was on there. Although I think he might be a lever when he started out. By the time he got off the island, he would be a Remainer because he would know the problems with it's being... It's not so fun being stranded on an island with insufficient <laughs> supplies, is it? <laughs> Even if you do control all the fish. On, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Robinson Crusoe on No Deal Island, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You've got it. Uh, Bridget Jones. Uh, well, I think she'd be uh, she, she'd be very, very soft Remain. I mean, she'd barely bother to vote, I think, in the referendum. But then after a while, she'd get totally into the Remain vibe and she'd be going on every march all the time and she'd have an enormous banner. And, yeah, I think she'd get progressive. She's one of these people who'd get progressively more Remain as time went on. <laughs> uh, Severus Snape. Oh... <laughs> But no spoilers. <laughs> yeah, you see, yeah, no spoilers. OK, that's difficult. Um, 
when you'd expect me to, to say leave, but I, I think he's playing he's playing the long game. Let's say that. Um, <laughs> Got it. We'll say, <laughs> say say any more, just in case anyone hasn't finished them yet. Um, I mean, after twenty years, you haven't. Been, oh, come on, anyway. Right. Um, no spoilers here, there, because people came out very recently. Jane Austen's Emma. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, she she. Um, does make mistakes, doesn't she? I think she might have been, she might have been influenced to vote leave by somebody who was, you know, putting a lot of, of uh, who, who, who she found very charismatic, <laughs> and uh, swept her off her feet, and that probably led her to, to to vote leave. But I think now, in the cold light of day, she regrets it very much, very um, much. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because he's he's very, he's very, uh, you know, he's he's outside the mainstream. Hmm. He's um, very facty, isn't he? He's, he's very facts. he's he's very facty, but he's only facty. I think there's um, he's only facty when it, it comes to specific areas of knowledge, and he knows nothing about politics, as I recall. He has absolutely no interest in politics, um, and in that because he focuses totally on uh, his forensic science. And, uh, you know, his, his, his very, very narrow interests. So I think he would just would not vote because he needs to, he needs to be completely impartial mm. and he, he needs to stay above the fray. So he has no opinion. As we know, Moriarty, played by Mark Gatiss, Romaniac's guest, modelled on Peter Mandelson. <laughs> so Moriarty would be very Remain but causing ructions yeah. in the yeah. People's Vote campaign. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he is real. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's totally real. Um, Madame Bovary. Uh, some similarities to Bridget Jones here. <coughs> I'm sure that's deliberate, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, um, like, um, like Bridget, she um, would have been she was extremely bored, basically, and she's looking for a cause. And when one comes along, she's going to throw herself into it wholeheartedly, totally... Uh, rocking the blue and yellow. Yeah, rocking the blue and yellow. She completely. wouldn't be persuaded to vote leave by, say, Captain Birdseye. <laughs> <laughs> have you read Madame I, Bovary? I, I, is, is he not he's in not, that, He's not in it. <laughs> <laughs> Although... It might be better if it was. <laughs> um, finally, Lady Macbeth. Uh, well, obviously leave, obviously. Because, Lady, you know, it, it's all about getting hold of the power and uh, getting Macbeth into power, and it's whatever it takes. And we all know that leave is basically a path to power for people who would otherwise not be fit to hold it. Um, so, <laughs> that's Lady Macbeth. I... What did it? <laughs> I, I think she'd be indie ref too for exactly the same reasons, actually. Well, of course, uh, there's that facet going on, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten she'd about it. She'd be privately leave yeah. indie ref too because she thinks then I get to rule a country. Ah, but yeah. Isn't, isn't there a life at Beth where it goes, like, I'm steeped so far in blood that to return would be as tedious as to go over? Right, exactly. And that's exactly. what I feel like is with, with Brexit, a lot of the people, it's just like you're just trudging, you've killed so many people already, <laughs> metaphorically. Um, that you just think, might as well keep going. Don't even know why I'm doing it anymore, but I'm, I'm soaked in blood. Yeah, yeah, precisely, precisely. <laughs> Wonderful. We're going to take a 15-minute break now so you can get a drink and peruse our lovely merch stall, all goods manufactured in Blackburn, uh, which voted leaves. So we're bringing the country together. <laughs> and we will see you in 15 minutes' time. Thank you. What is that? Is that my wine? Oh, yeah. 
Wait, I don't this care which one I get. <laughs> That's your wine. This is whiskey. Go on. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Hello, welcome back. Um, I'm afraid I was responsible for uh, some disinformation earlier. I, of course, meant Mycroft Holmes, not Moriarty. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the M's. Um, We'll have another round of Leave a Remain, where I'll try and get the names right. Um, Contestant is Ian Dunt. Oh, right, fuck, yes. And the category... His comic book characters. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck. This is great. This is basically... My whole life has been waiting for this moment to talk about Brexit. (laughs) Important caveat for the pedants. Only one of these characters is English, and he's a masked anarchist terrorist who lives underground. (laughs) So none of them would have been able to vote in the referendum. (laughs) Um, So you'll have to use your skill and judgment. Your names are Batman. Yeah. Well, the thing is, so... (laughs) (laughs) This is going to take a really long time. So, <laughs> okay, so Bruce Wayne is obviously a Remainer, but of course Bruce Wayne is not the real personality. Batman is the real personality, and Batman just could not give a fuck. He just wants to beat up people in the street. <laughs> yeah, there's no, yeah. Okay, so that, but that not in an ideological way. Just what, like the manner fun. in which he beats people up. Yeah, he I mean, you could argue that there's a sort of disturbing class element to the fact that this billionaire spends all of his nights soaked in the blood of the poor. But <laughs> I don't see any reason to interpret it in that way. No. OK, um, controversy magnet to the Joker. He's got to be leave, hasn't he? Just on the, just the fucking chaos of it all. Sort of Johnny Rotten leave, isn't he? Exactly, yeah, yeah, good call, yeah, exactly. He's, he's, he, he is a leaver. I mean, no, you know, the Joker, again, like Batman, couldn't give two shits, but he would love the chaos of it. So, yeah, he'd he be a leaver. He likes to see the world burn. He does, he does. He wouldn't even, he'd be so extreme, he'd be like, I don't even care about Gat 24. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like, he'd be like, no deal is sellout. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have, he'd have found a previously unknown, harder form of Brexit. <laughs> um, Iron Man, another one of the 1%. Totally. Re- oh, he's Remain. For the, for the just-in-time supply lines. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Um, Judge Dredd. It is hard. It is hard. Because you instinctively think, leave... But the thing is, he wants order, right? And he's used to... Mega City 1 covers basically a shitload of a continent, so he's quite used to having a sort of super state. I think he's Remain. He likes institutions as well. He does. Big, he big does. Institutions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the rule Strict of enforcement of single market like rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's Remain. I'm not terribly comfortable with that, um, but I think he is Remain, yeah. Um, now, King of Latveria... Uh, whose application to join the EU has recently been blocked by Macron. <laughs> uh, Doctor Doom. Victor Von Doom. He's got to be... He's leaving he's leave a sort of Putin-esque sort of way of, like, this will work to separate out my, you know, my, my opponents across the sea, shatter their international institutions. Yeah, he's, he's leave. He's okay. Victor Von Doom leave. Uh, we mentioned him earlier, V from V for Vendetta. He's tough as well. Because I'd suspect he would just want to blow up Brussels and Westminster in roughly equal measure. Would he be hard Lexit? <laughs> yeah, you're right, he is. He's hard Lexit. Yeah, that's correct. Magneto. Magneto's a Remainer. He's obviously a Remainer. Yeah. And I think he, but he's your problematic Remainer. It's, it's like how you feel, like you know, when, when Tony Blair... <laughs> yeah, yeah, on, on the supervillain stuff. Um, 
Is it, you know, like when Tony Blair goes out and starts talking, you're like, I mean, everything you're saying is making sense, but I don't think it's particularly helpful that you're doing it. I think that's how we would feel if Magneto was... That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. It's just like, but you are, you're bending metal, <laughs> and it's distracting. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, because he was a, a, a Holocaust survivor, and so he would believe in... I don't want to get too heavy about this, but he would believe in Europe as a, as a kind of peace project. Yeah, he would. And, and he would generally, I think, have a, a, an instinctive idea of, of the sort of the, the problems that were going on in, in the emotional heart of, of the leave operation. So, you know, he would be sound on this matter. However, he would also want to annihilate the entirety of the human race. So you have to counter, you know, people are complicated. Look, man, we mm. can't have purity tests. <laughs> it's just like, if he's on side... Um, and finally, uh, our problematic fave, Thanos. He would just want to kill half the people. And I think he'd be roughly, he'd be pretty comfortable with the sort of remain leave sort of elements of that. Does yeah. he want to kill 48% or 52% of the people? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think either side is going to be able to claim Thanos. <laughs> OK. Now, uh, for the last part of the show, we want to look behind Brexit at some of the factors that brought it into being and what we've neglected in the years that we've wasted on our neurotic relationship with Europe. Ian, Remainers do like to talk uh, nostalgically about the 2012 Olympic ceremony, which seemed to represent a vision of Britain uh, that was very kind of like inclusive and uplifting, and so the NHS and multiculturalism and mm -hmm. general optimism and dizzy rascal. Um, <laughs> And, of course, everything wasn't great for everybody in 2012. We still had austerity. We still had, a, we had a David Cameron. Um, who read <laughs> David Cameron's book? Good. Um, <laughs> um, what do you make of the charge that a certain kind of um, centrist complacency you know, led to Brexit? Oh, Christ, that's a lot to say there. Um, OK, obviously there, there must be some sort of truth to that. Let's take, the, let's, take the, but then let's take the Olympics moment as one go, OK? Because it's not the case, if you think this is a positive development, something is coming from this where we are reformulating a sense of identity that is confident, mm -hmm. that is real and rooted in the country that we actually live and that is diverse, that can be a positive while simultaneously there are economic or political policies taking place from the government that you do not like. So what's happened is that because that moment turned into this sort of totemic just sort of evening for a view of Britain which seemed much healthier and which seemed to have sturdy foundations, where lots of people who previously were quite uncomfortable with patriotism and with the notion of Britain were able to embrace it in that manner, doesn't mean that you've signed up to everything that is happening in Britain at that exact moment. So we've oversimplified it. And the positive thing that was taking place was that sense of identity. And it didn't mean that we didn't have problems at the same time. However, this is the point that we really have to point out that I think a lot of liberals got wrong, which was we were failing to describe a politics that gave people control. So you get it on, I think, laissez-faire, right-wing sort of liberal economics, which is ultimately like, oh, it's a shame about the factory, but, you know, fuck it, you, you've got to let money do what money does. You know, the market's got to be left on its own. So the politician has no role there. When we had... Um, global institutions, things like the EU, things like the WTO, which actually demands quite a lot of sovereignty when you actually look into it. Um, 
On that basis, too, we were failing to explain how it is that countries can have more power, can get certain benefits by giving up some of the controls that they have. And because liberals weren't making those arguments, other people were able to have a free run to make other arguments entirely. So, yes, there was complacency there. There absolutely was, and we can address that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be happy about the form of identity that we were aspiring to and that for a few moments we had and were able to express at that time. Uh, Rob, you wrote uh, an entire book about the, the rise of the new right. How many different kind of, and obviously that was, you know, that, that does feed into Brexit. How many different factors were at, at play there when we're talking about, you know, culture and identity and economics? Is it, is it how complicated is that movement? Well, well it's, it is very complicated, which is why I wrote a whole book about it and I just, <laughs> just finished writing another book <laughs> about it. Uh, that's, that's not the Sex, Lies and Politics book. There's another book I just submitted on Monday, which will be out in the spring in all good bookstores, internet sites, so forth. Please I buy can't it. believe you've plugged two books. Three yeah, books. No, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, well, it, it is very complicated. And at the heart of, I think, a lot of the confusion uh, about Brexit and about the rise of the new right, both here and elsewhere, is that we are struggling to come to terms with the way that fundamental fault lines in our politics have changed. Uh, for most of the post-war era, the politics in Europe has been about class and about economics, about haves and have-nots, about markets and the state, about public services and taxes. The divide over Brexit, the divide that the, the new right mobilise everywhere, is nothing to do with that mm. for the most part. It is a divide that is about education and it is a divide that is about identity and it's a divide that's about values and it's a divide that's about personality. Now, the Americans, I think, have a more intuitive grasp of that because their politics has been like that since forever. Uh, the economic stuff in American politics has always been secondary. The reason that the New Deal period in American politics is so unusual is because it was one of the few periods in American politics where class and wealth and stuff became the primary argument. It's always been culture, identity, values, and, of course, the dark side to that as well, fear of the other, which you've talked about, mm. Ian. And so that's the big thesis in our new book, spoiler alert, uh, that... Um, what has happened in the last 20 or 25 years is we have become a country of graduates. When Tony Blair was elected in 1997, less than one voter in 10 in the electorate had ever seen the inside of a university lecture hall. Very sad for them, of course, they could have seen me. Um, <laughs> uh, now it is more like 40% and it rises every single year. Uh, and that electorate thinks differently. Uh, about the world compared to the electorate of people who left school at 16, often went straight into the world of work and often stay right where they are. Graduates are mobile, graduates are uh, open, graduates uh, go to university, they question their preconceptions. People who stay uh, at home and, and leave school at 16, they tend to be more rooted, they tend to be more socially conservative. And that was there in the Blair years. It was there in 2012, if you looked at the data, but it wasn't part of the political argument. And so that's the way in which I think we were complacent, is that we thought it would never become part of the political argument, even though in 2012 you could see the flickering of it in UKIP. And if you looked across the channel at what was happening in France or the Netherlands or Italy, you could see that it was becoming part of the political argument. And now 
it's the whole of our political argument. So we've come full circle in just a few years to a situation. And then we struggle with understanding that because we're so used to thinking in terms of class and economics that we talk about working class leavers uh, or we talk about austerity and the link that it has with leave. And in my view, that's kind of missing the point. It's not that those things are irrelevant. It's that they're secondary. The primary thing which we have to confront is a division between graduates and school leavers, a division between people who've migrated and people who have not, or have, you know, in their ancestry, people who've migrated, second, third generation migrants, and people who've always stuck in the same place. And that's a really deep divide that's about values, much more than it's about who gets more money out of the government or anything like that. Well, is that a big problem for Labour? Because I think Corbyn... Um is much happier framing it in the kind of the terms that sort of he grew up in politics with. And so it's all about the sort of the many, not the few, and it's targeting billionaire elites. And he really, really wants to make this an election that he can win on an economic argument. Um, is that, is he on a hiding to nothing with that? Well, it's a huge problem for him because, I mean, it's also... He's not the first one to try that, of course. Uh, Ed Miliband, remember him, uh, was very keen on trying to get uh, politics arguments to be back about economics and to offer a more sort of left-wing offer, you know, populist offer, go after the power companies and all this kind of stuff. And there is this big chunk of the electorate who are both very economically left-wing, very economically populist, they don't like the bosses, they don't like the workers, they think there's too much uh, inequality in society, they want wealth redistributed, but they are also very socially conservative, very nationalistic, rather now anti-EU, um, very uh, anxious about, opposed to immigration and stuff like that. And the problem is that you have to try and make them, if you're Corbyn, you have to try and make them flip back to focusing on the economic stuff. And that's tough to do, but not impossible to do. Perhaps much of what was surprising about the 2017 election was that it turned out that there was more voters there where you could switch that dial than we thought, or possibly that some of them were so anti-conservative that while they might be willing to vote UKIP or Brexit party on those kinds of grounds, they wouldn't vote conservatives because then this whole additional line of those are the guys who are totally against us on everything to do with economics mm. and class. We can't go to them even if we like what they say about the nation in Europe. Um, and that's tough, it's, but you can't really see any other way he could play it. Because the only other way you could play it if you're Labour is to say sayonara to that section of the electorate and hope that you can win all the middle-class Liberals of Surrey and Sussex and so forth over to your banner and realign politics around that. But that's a huge gamble too. Either, either option is a gamble, but I can see why he goes with the one that's more in keeping with his kind of lifelong political persona mm. and values. I mean, it makes sense. Mm. Well, most European countries have had active nationalists, sometimes sort of fascist minority parties, particularly people with different electoral systems. Um, so it's, it's, has Brexit uh, ironically made us more European? <laughs> Not in the fun way, but like more <laughs> fascists. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of made us turbo-European in, in this respect because most, most European countries since about the mid-late 90s have had a radical right party, uh, which tends to be nationalistic, anti-immigration, often anti-EU, although it, it, since Brexit they've all backed off of the idea of leaving. So mm. there, was, there was Nexit and Frexit for a while, not anymore. Uh, <laughs> changed their minds about that. Uh, and that cluster of values has proved to be very electorally potent if you're in a proportional system. So those parties will typically get 50 20, 25% of the vote everywhere. There's a big chunk of votes for that. And that's partly because this new identity, education, culture divide is, is, is opening up 
like a sort of Grand Canyon in, in all of our electorates. Um, but our first-past-the-post system effect effectively kept that completely out. And so this pressure built up all the way through the <coughs> 2000s, and it primarily got expressed in the first period by people just stopping voting altogether and turning against politics, uh, saying that they couldn't see any voice for it. And then when it did explode out, it became this enormous thing. Uh, where now it becomes the big primary thing uh, that people are on about. Incidentally, it's also a big factor in what's happened in Scotland. The Scots uh, like to think of themselves as, you know, much more liberal than the nasty, nationalistic, bigoted, backward English. Um, but a big chunk of the support for Scottish nationalism comes from the same kind of people who don't like social change, much more comfortable with continuity, identity, nationalism and stuff like that. And they're, they're in favour of Scottish independence on those grounds. Uh, what the SNP have managed to do is to kind of keep those people off the stage uh, in order to build a broader coalition whereas here in the Brexit uh, argument uh, thanks to uh, Dominic Cummings and Leave that's become the primary argument that they make about this stuff you know us versus them take back control and so forth. Mm. Um, Ros, politics used to be about other things um, and while we've been concentrating on Brexit we've neglected things like education, health, infrastructure, inequality, investment in the economy, climate change um, <laughs> Everything that isn't Brexit. Um, and when, if we get back to sort of a more normal political mm. system, um, which mm. of these areas do you expect will be the kind of most urgent for, I mean, maybe not by our, from our opinion, but which do you think that the kind of the parties are really going to have to sort of focus on quite urgently? I think there's going to be a big shakeout that comes around what you can loosely call inequality and the perception of inequality. And you can see Labour beginning to reach towards this and beginning to benefit from it a bit with the talk about private schools. So I think that there's going to be a feeling that there has to be some kind of levelling. And this began a little bit with the idea, when the ideas about inequality first began with the publication of a book called The Spirit Level that you might have heard of about ten years ago, um, when it first became apparent that there was a big divergence in society between the very, uh, very richest and the poorest, and that was altering and, and changing. And so I think there will be a kind of public demand for, in particular, people who currently buy their way out of communal experiences, whether that's going private for health, um, you know, never using public transport, uh, uh, you know, owning homes they don't live in, um, multiply, um, uh, private schooling, there will be a kind of movement to say, actually, that's not OK. These people are not part of our, our polis. These people ought to be part of our polis. And there will be a kind of wanting uh, to, to... People will want to see that levelled out. And there will be an attack on, um, you know, multiple la uh, landlords in, with multiple properties that they... Uh, manage badly and all those kinds of other things, uh, examples, uh, gross examples of inequality. The fact in, you know, in London at least, and I don't know if it's the same in Manchester, that there are thousands of people sleeping rough on the streets, and yet you also have acres and acres within zone two and three given over to golf courses, which is absolutely unjustifiable. And, you know, and, and yet it's become okay. It's, we've been, we've been and, and, you know, this may make me sound very Corbynite, and I'm not actually a Corbynite, as those are regular listeners will know but there are some extreme examples of that kind of inequality and i think we'll see a move towards a leveling of that kind of that that those those sorts of inequalities 
Um, Ian, it's been kind of uh, amazing to watch the kind of the argument for Brexit move from leave the EU for sort of better trade and, and more money for the NHS and buccaneering on the high seas um, to an end in itself. You know, they want it because they want it. It becomes, it's, it's just a kind of, it's like an aerobarous, there's no justification, it is its own justification. Um, if Brexit is resolved when it is resolved in one way or another, do you think that there will be a return to normality? Or do you think that because so much of this is sort of culture war energy and it's not like a lot of the people most angry about Brexit are not like big Patrick Minford fans. <clears throat> you know, they're not really excited about the economics. It's a culture thing. Patrick Minford isn't excited about economics either. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what the fuck he's babbling about. Yep. Um, but do you think that that energy that Rob's talking about, that sort of culture war energy, will just simply find something else, as it seems to, in America, it just seems to be there are many kind of vessels for that energy? So I think a lot of it comes down to how it is that the change takes place. So when Boris Johnson was trying to just stuff that deal through Parliament in two days, and it was quite clear, MPs just didn't know what was in it, it was quite clear the Brexit Secretary had no fucking idea what it entailed, and it was also quite clear the Prime Minister, frankly, had a, a negligible, if at all, impression of what, it, of what the consequences would be. If that had then gone through, this is a deal that over the next, you know, however many years, when people realise Brexit is not going to stop being talked about because of this thing, when we become poorer, when there become borders that go down within our territory, I think if that had been the context in which it was passed, in a, in a rush, in a cynical rush, that would make it harder for people to accept what would come from it, rather than if now he was to win a majority and able to pass it that way, because there'd be some sort of sense that the public had had a role in it in some, you know, imperfect, but some capacity. And I think the same thing goes for our side as well. Like one of the reasons that I was becoming increasingly concerned about the talk about uh, government of national unity and having a referendum that way, was it sort of felt like if you just get rid of the prime minister and have a, a lot of parties that don't have a majority club together to then have a referendum, and it was to go the Remain way, you're, cre you're tailor-creating a narrative of betrayal for the way things go off. Whereas if we were to get a majority through Labour and the SNP and the Lib Dems now in this election to hold another referendum. I think that adds up to a rather different scenario. So the betrayal narrative matters, and then what is taking place at the same time? Have you massively impoverished yourself as a country? Because even though Rob's completely right, like most economics doesn't really come into a lot of this stuff, if a country gets much poorer quite quickly, and if it is being visibly humbled and humiliated on the world stage, that plays into these narratives of, of, of betrayal. So it's all about really the manner in which it takes place. Right, moving on. <laughs> bit of fun, bit of optimism. Um, we're going to talk about the heroes of Brexit, uh, because there are some. Um, who's inspired us? Who's achieved the unachievable? Who's broken the rules, rules of politics in a good way, as opposed to a dom way? Um, who really ought to come on the podcast, if they're listening? Um, uh, Rob, I'm going to start. Who is your sort of hero of Brexit? Right, well, as a signed-up member of the Academics Union, I, I kind of have to give a big shout-out, I think, to the academics of Brexit, the geeks of Brexit, mm. uh, people like Anand Menon, uh, Sir John Curtis, uh, Sarah Hobolt, uh, the UK and a Changing Europe uh, gang, because uh, I really think that as a profession, we've really quite excelled ourselves in this period in terms of providing everyone in this very polarised debate with informed analysis 
that you, that, that you can then take whichever way you want to in terms of uh, taking it forward, but helping people to understand this extraordinary moment of change in our society. And these guys are just extraordinarily committed to, to what they do and have really, really put in the hours. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, my, co my colleague Phil Cowley is very fond of, this, of pointing this out, you know, you would really struggle to sort of crowbar an academic out of the lecture hall or the office to sort of talk to the great unwashed. Uh, whereas John and Anna... Not you. And, and, uh, when, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, modesty uh, prevents. Uh, but um, <laughs> these guys, they do that, and they love doing that, and they work really, really hard to help to make this stuff, often quite complex stuff, digestible. Um, you know, again, not necessarily a skill academics of the past were great at. And I think that's been of a huge benefit uh, to all sides in this debate, to be able to draw on these kinds of resources, and that requires a lot of bloody hard work. So mm -hmm. I'm bigging up my colleagues, mm -hmm. up the geeks. <laughs> The podcasters, don't forget the podcasters. <laughs> very, very important. Um, who, so where do you think that, that one of these kind of um, experts, of whom we are very fond, um, has really kind of, you know, m moved the needle, has had a real sort of impact on the on the conversation <laughs> well i think one of the lessons many of us have spent a lot of time uh teaching the public is that it's really bloody hard to have an impact uh, on people in this debate now everybody's uh, really entrenched but i think for example uh, the debate about the costs of brexit and you know everybody is producing all these cost estimates about what, what will happen and, and all this kind of thing but every time there's some sort of big decision point there will be a whacking gate report uh, from the uk and the changing europe and you'll get about seven or eight different experts talk in specific terms about where the costs lie. So it's not just one number, it's all the things that go into the number. And I've seen people across the spectrum use that information and trust that information. And given that that's one of the big things, you know, how much is it going to cost, how much poorer will we be, that's hugely important, I think. Without, and without that work, it would just be whoever chucked a number out there. Um, you know, and you know, we know as academics that uh, if there's a vacuum politically, it will be filled by some chancer. Uh, so... The fact that we have filled it ourselves mm. with decent research, which has been to be done bloody quickly because everything moves very fast, has, I think, been hugely helpful to everyone involved. And it's not just data either, because um, there's a whole branch of um, academia, which is loosely called ethnographic, uh, ethnographic work, and that basically means going out and talking to people about what they, they're feeling about stuff. And there's been a lot of very, very valuable work done going out to, in particular, to... Polish community, for example, and other groups of migrants, looking at what they're, uh, how they're feeling, what their concerns are, and uh, also, you know, to going beyond the BBC Vox Pop of the people outside the market on a Wednesday on a Wednesday afternoon, actually talking to people properly about um, their views, and if you know, on LSE Brexit, shameless plug, uh, you can find quite a lot of these ethnographers <laughs> writing about what they found and what people have told them. And that's really important because they often talk uh, much more interestingly than they will do, will do to a journalist who just shoves a mic under their, under their mouth and gives them 30 seconds. Ian, is there any way that you are able to plug your product um, <laughs> while talking about your hero of Brexit? Oh, yeah, right, my hero is, is Lady Hale. Um, uh, <coughs> mm. University of Manchester, a graduate and really a former lecturer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in a way, it's sort of unhelpful to mention her because 
you don't want to get sucked into this, you know, everything is the culture war. And by virtue of looking at that judgment and personalizing it with her, you, of course, play danger of doing that for your own side. But there were things about that moment that stuck out to me. The first one was that whole Supreme Court case, the fucking relief. It was so pleasant to watch. So I spent my days watching the comments, right? And so you have some idea of the reality of how things are operating, and then you're just listening to this god-awful muck that has no connection to the real world at all and no rationality to it. And instead, we saw this, like, structured, reasoned approach. So when if this, then this, then this, and if that, then you're fucked, mate. And that <laughs> is like, you're just like, oh, thank fucking Christ, like, rationality is back for just a holiday. It's like a rationality holiday. That's what this case has been. Then there was the, the image, and the image matters, of the institutions holding firm. And the more we get into this nationalist period, it's about the executive borrowing that sense of democratic legitimacy from the referendum mandate and going, like, we can stamp on the courts, we can stamp on parliament, everything, we are the people. This government represents the people by some magical Merlin process. And therefore, if you are saying anything that scrutinises us or opposes us, then you are against the people, that classic betrayal narrative. And on this, what matters in that scenario is, can the institutions hold firm? In Hungary... They did not hold firm. They were too young, it was too, it was too harsh, and he was, much, frankly, Orban is much cleverer than any of the guys operating here. They couldn't hold firm. Here, when that happened, you're like, it's holding firm. And the third part was that it came, obviously, after the stuff around Gurley Swap, and that note. Now, Boris Johnson's communications, it's that constant attitude in them of, like, you've got to man up. You know, you've got, it's this constant kind of gender stuff which always it just seems quite yucky, and you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, man. It's not like you look like you'd win in any fights either, frankly. <laughs> and then in this sort of moment that could have been, you know, written by a playwright, it's like, oh, fuck, there's a girly swat here right now, and she is about to fuck your shit up. <laughs> and like, that was so pleasant. Like, mm, right. <clears throat> um... Rose, we're a little short, running a little short of time. Uh, but could we have your, your Brexit hero? Uh, it's Donald Tusk. I'm, I'm sorry to be a very And I'm really, I'm really, I mean, he's, he's moving off the stage now, of course, because he's leaving his, his job, and so we won't have his patient, moderating influence. He's all like, farewell, humans. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, over the European Commission, you know. It's like still... Dr. Manhattan going to the moon. Still caring about us, no matter how atrociously we behave, no matter what, you know, uh, how, how appallingly we speak of the European institutions, he just, you know, it all, it just uh, washes over him and he carries on being patient. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's Donald Tusk. Um, so mine is um, Dominic Grieve because I'm generally, at this age, I'm used to being let down by politicians, that almost every, everyone that you sort of... You think, oh, they look, they're good, you know, they're good. They, can't, they seem to have integrity or whatever, and they'll just kind of... And particularly among Tory Remainers, Jesus Christ, do not put your faith <laughs> in most of them. Um, and yet he has just been kind of resolute. He also kind of represents Team Lawyer, <laughs> who's been very important over the last three years. Um, and he does have this kind of... This appears to me to be like a genuine integrity, that it really sort of matters. He's very passionate about this, but in a very calm, sort of reasonable way. He's basically willing to say goodbye to his political career 
you know, I do think there is always something... I'm always a bit touched by people that just go, do you know what, this is my tribe, this is my career. But no, the principle is more important. And I almost keep expecting any politician I like to at some point completely let me down. Mm. Um, and he hasn't done so. And uh, I've just find... And also the practical measures that he's taken, you know, the amendments he's introduced, the kind of his legal advice... Um, it's generally like, oh, right, this is, what, this is what MPs are for. And as somebody who is very much not a Tory, um, it's been kind of quite encouraging that it's just like, it's, mm. it, it, it's, you know, you can see that integrity cuts across party lines. Mm. Mm. Um, so we're going to have some questions very shortly. Uh, we're going to do a final uh, round of Leave or Remain that Roz is going to lead. Yeah, I, I need to uh, ask you about northern uh, musicians. <laughs> uh, and whether they're, whether they're leave or remain. So we're going to kick off with uh, Anthony H. Wilson. So remain. <laughs> Somebody who might actually be quite annoying on Twitter about <laughs> remain. Um, but, you know, sort of vague, you know, cultured, adventurous, you know, bringing the world in, inspired by Italian, you know, futurism. It's just like, come on. <laughs> He'd be great. Plus, John Savage, who was very much a kind of fellow traveller of, of Jenny Wilson, is firmly Remain. So that's an easy one. Okay. That's Remain plus 30. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an academic now. <laughs> Okay, how about bears? <laughs> bears may not have voted. I, I, suspect, I suspect you're right there. May not have read up on it. Uh, I just think bears would be above all that. I think bears exists on a higher, <laughs> simpler plane. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that he would, he would just take a principled decision to, to just lie in <laughs> and not vote. A bit like Sherlock Holmes, but different, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they are, they are they're very similar in many, many ways. <laughs> OK, Marky e. Smith. He's sort he's leave, isn't he? I mean, he is, because there's, like, there was a famous thing, I think, in the 80s with the enemy asking who was going to vote which way in the 83 election. And he came out hard, Thatcher. Huh. Mainly, I think, to annoy everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that after a while, that just becomes your whole thing. So I think he would vote leave just to annoy people like us, mm. um, whether, whether or not he actually believed in it. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think that's right. Um, Bonehead from Oasis. Now, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not completely au fait with all these bands and so on. Um, and, um, <laughs> Well, the, and they were quite so big. I think, about, I think of Oasis as kind of Liam Gallagher and his brother, and Bonehead is someone else, is that right? Yes. Right. <laughs> okay, you wouldn't, you Bone, wouldn't guess that Bonehead I was prime Britpop Bonehead was the yeah. heart and soul of Oasis. <laughs> right, okay. And then when he left, they were, they were never the same again. <laughs> um, I. <sighs> would he. What? Where? Um. I'm going to say remain, like, <laughs> soft remain. Mm. Just got, I kind of like, he's just an amiable character. 
I know there are amiable leavers, um, <laughs> but I've never met any. So <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ian Curtis. Oh. Now, it's very unfair on Ian Curtis because he voted... He only got to vote in one election before he died. He was 79. He famously voted for the Tories. And so, therefore, he always has a reputation where they go, oh, he was a Thatcherite. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was. And you look at the rest of New Order, Joy Division, as was, um, and they're very Remainy. They're, like, super Remainy. They have European flags up on the screens, New Order. Um, so I think that <coughs> they would... I think they would have talked him round. <laughs> Right. I think Bernard, he's very close to Bernard. Bernard is a, actual, was a, certainly at some point a Romaniacs listener. And I think he would have, I think he would have talked him round. So, yeah. Why haven't we had New Order on Romaniacs? You've got, you've got to ask, haven't you? I mean, it's, it just seems... Can't, there's like a limit to like, there's certain people that if you put in that chair, I'll just be like, we are not worthy. <laughs> and I can't okay. guarantee to keep my shit yeah. together. If um, the, like, Neil, ne- for me, Neil Tennant also <clears throat> falls into that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Next. Uh, Liam Gallagher. Oof. Aforementioned. Well, he's very sort of hamstered now, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Primarily. And Noel is like, I don't think he's pro-Brexit, but he's just he's a bit like, just get on with it. <laughs> he is. I think he's, he's just, yeah. People, so I think Liam would be remain to annoy Noel. <laughs> 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 he, would like, he would actually just join a, he would join a march. <laughs> He'd be on the march with just like a fuck Noel placard. <laughs> 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 yellow stars around it. Yeah. <laughs> OK, and the last one, um, well, <laughs> the last one is Morrissey. <laughs> Mor- the famous Guardian-hating Morrissey. Brexit. <laughs> I'm sorry, there's no, there's no way of, of kind of just uh, finessing him out of it, is there? He is just Brexit. Yeah, there's no... Yeah. I don't think he's particularly into the, you know, the WTO or something. <laughs> no, I just... I, just, I think may would, at one point, have been some ambiguity... Uh, but there is no ambiguity left. Yeah. Mm. No, I mean, he's one of the people who, you know, ought to be rioting today, but isn't, <laughs> amazingly. <laughs> Why not? In his, in his Fuck the Guardian T-shirt. Yeah, 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 I noticed that. The old logo of the Guardian's a bit outdated, so, isn't it? So that's, <laughs> so that's Manchester done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's the end of Romaniacs Live in Salford. Thank you very much. <laughs> Producer Andrew, do we have any question time? We have time for three questions, so make, make them good. Um, is there a roving mic, or are people going to have to shout? <laughs> while, while the mic roves, we've been asked to give a shout-out to Manchester for Europe, who have got a sign-up sheet outside, yep. and uh, you were advised to sign up. Um, you know, what better event to publicise it? <laughs> Thank so. you. Hi, and uh, I, well, we are Manchester for Europe, actually, so, so thank you for that. <laughs> and, and <laughs> Why is everyone I, getting plugs but me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about me? Because it's Manchester. Northpolitics.co.uk. So, looking forward to the general election? No. No, 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 no we're not. I'm not. No. I am. Um, but we do actually need everybody here helping us on the street, so plug again. Um, but politically, a political question here. How do we mobilise the students of Manchester in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the forthcoming general election? 
Uh, we, we, we see I'm, it I'm as an, an absolute academic. priority. You seem to have confused me with a, with a mobiliser. We're very different kinds of people. I sit in a shed with Excel and look at numbers. I don't mobilise people. Uh, but seriously, um, uh, I, I think the answer is uh, all the research, to the extent that it shows an effect, shows that face-to-face -face is the way to do it. And I don't think students are any different in that regard. So uh, if you go and get meet people face-to-face, -face, get them to make a pledge to vote, get them to make a plan to vote, that actually matters. Give them, get them to make a concrete plan because it sticks in people's memory and then they do it. Uh, so that, that's how I would do it. Just go knock door to door in the halls because they're still there. Um, Joe Swinson and Jeremy Corbyn are wrong. The students of the University of Manchester, I hope, will still be there because <laughs> they have a last lecture from me and they're supposed to come to it. Um, <laughs> so uh, go knock do door to door in the halls and in the sort of Fallowfield area and things like that and um, say to them, are you going to vote? And then when they say yes, hopefully, then say, OK, tell me how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it. Let's go through a plan together. That's what the Obama people used to do. And then... Hopefully, you get more of them out. Well, our um, Great. lovely and, and Uber driver uh, was saying that he'd been talking to his uncle, and his uncle was just like despairing. He goes, what's the point in voting? Um, and we were saying, tell him that there is. And I know it seems like a really, really basic point. And, of course, there's great complexities in various parts of the country about which way you should vote to, to defeat the Tories and to serve, remain the best. But just if you do know people students or otherwise, who are just feeling like, what's the point? It's just like, there is very much a point. There is n rarely has there been more of a point, mm -hmm. you know, and even if it feels like it's, you know, the polls are against us, it's like it's absolutely vital not to let people to sort of give in to despair. Thank you. Um, another? Um, one of the things that I noticed on the European elections was that across Europe, the Green Party also did pretty well, and, and they weren't one of the political groupings you mentioned. And again, if I think about intergenerational stuff, um, then the, the, the way the youth are mobilising uh, on the environment seems like this is an issue. And I, I just wonder what your um, thoughts are on how that plays into the way the election might go. Yeah, I wanted to write about this, actually, because um, I was chatting to someone who, I can't say who that is, um, is in Europe and looking at the stuff that Europe is about to do on the environment. And Europe's about to adopt an incredibly radical environmental policy. Um, and then there is the broader argument of this is a problem that cannot be solved one nation at a time. The dynamic that operates when it's nations alone is that you basically try to undercut each other. You find reasons to keep on going down. And yet we have, I think, failed to make the link between these groups. Like the other day, it was the day before uh, the big people's vote march on what was like lamentably called Super Saturday and was, in fact, like fucking horror show Saturday, <laughs> which ended out all right. Um, and I remember seeing all of the Extinction Rebellion guys walking up Whitehall away from their demo, and I'm just sort of looking, being like, it is insane to me that these are two separate groups. Because you, you don't want to conclude to us, but you're like... I'm pretty sure we're on the same page on most of this stuff. And like making a linkage there during this election could prove to be quite important. I think could prove to be important in mobilizing the youth vote. But it hasn't been done so far that it is a good place to think about it and people will be working to do it. Yeah, I think, um, sorry, the, the, one of the interesting things about 
Extinction Rebellion is that I was talking to someone who was arrested a few days ago and, uh, you know, quite proud of it, but arrested <laughs> um, and, and uh, spent the night, the night in jail um, on the Trafalgar Square protest. And, she was, and I was saying, oh, is it, you know, is it a generational thing? She said, no, absolutely not. There are so many elderly women and late middle-aged women on these demos and uh, elderly people. It just cuts across completely. It is, it is a completely intergenerational movement. And, you know, when you get someone like Boris Johnson uh, slagging off, you know, the, the youth and the crusties and blah, 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 that is, that is a total misrepresentation. It is a movement that is really cutting across the generations, which I think is quite hopeful, especially in the context of some of the things Rob was saying about the generational divides, that this is something that can bring people together. Um, and we've got one more. Uh, we're going to have to answer quite quickly. So one word, one word answer, basically. Brexit, yes or no? No. <laughs> uh, this isn't that, unfortunately. Um, you were talking earlier about the pro-EU follow-back part group and the levers um, being the chief purveyors of abuse. I was wondering how, and maybe this is a question for Rob, how many members of a group does it take before you think the whole group is arseholes? <laughs> So how many follow-back pro-EU people being arseholes does it take before you think all follow-back pro-EU people are arseholes? And equally, the same question with mm. Leavers or any other group of... of uh, any other amorphous group which is easy to join and hard to keep people out of. Oh, that's a fascinating question, and I've not got much time. Um, <laughs> what we know in terms of social groups is that very often people tend to form images of them, stereotypes of them, based on the behaviour of the most extreme members. So it is a huge problem, actually, for groups like FBPE that are porous uh, if you have a few people behaving very obviously very badly because that is what people will notice and it will stick and attach as the stereotype. It's, it's one reason why some sort of policing mechanisms to hold people responsible for that behaviour are hugely important because it is actually damaging to the broader group because of how we think in terms of groups. Yeah, and unfortunately I, you also see people using the problem with the hashtag, the FBP hashtag, which I think is a bad idea, um, is that you see trolls using it. See terrible people who, and you look at their feeds, they're obviously not genuine, but all that people do is they see the hashtag and associate it with abuse. So there's that whole other problem mm. online. Sorry that we can't do any more questions. Um, uh, thanks so much for coming out. I want to say thanks to our special guest, Rob Ford, the University of Manchester. <laughs> thanks to Ros and Ian. Um, thanks to our, uh, our fellow panellists who aren't here, Ingrid Oliver, Alex Andreo, Nina Schick, Ben from Led by Donkeys, and above all, this week's Romaniac superhero, Naomi Smith from Best for Written. Mm -hmm. and, and thank you very much to Dorian as well. And massive thanks to uh, our staff of the Lowry for helping make the show happen. For everybody for coming out, sorry that it's taken us a while <laughs> to come this far. It's very nice. If someone had told us <laughs> before how nice it would be, um, we'd have come. But really, uh, very much appreciate the support and uh, have faith. Thank you. <laughs>